0: Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot-by-10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale, in-store and online at cabelas.com.
1: Welcome to Real Jam Radio. This is Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us. My guest for this episode is Derek Bodner. He is the 76ers insider for Philadelphia Magazine. He also covers the NBA draft for USA Today and college basketball for Draft Express. Great guest to talk about the Sixers specifically, which is what we talk about for about the first half, maybe a little bit more than that, and then we talk about the draft a little bit more generally, who he likes and everything like that conversation runs about an hour. I really enjoyed it. I hope you will, too. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. I always love the duality of what you do because being somebody who's so knowledgeable about the draft and also somebody who knows the Sixers so well, the whole time we've known each other has been a, a, a really great combination.
2: I, I cover the draft from many different angles, yes.
1: <laughs> so we did this about a year ago with the Sixers, and they a lot has changed structurally and even in terms of talent, but... What I think is the best place to start is of the members of the team right now, the the guys that are on roster, who would you expect will be around long term?
2: Well, I think I think Joel Embiid, you know, if we're talking long term and long term with the Sixers is kind of like the next year. (laughs) I I don't think you can really look at anyone and say he's definitely going to be here in four years. Like they just don't have that kind of certainty. But who I do think will at least be here for the next two years, which is the duration of his rookie contract, is going to be Joel Embiid. Just for two simple facts. First, he has an immense amount of talent. And second, he just doesn't have the trade value right now after missing two seasons. So it's going to take him some time to rebuild that back up, to convince people that you know he's a guy worth counting on and worth betting on. So I think he's going to be here. Outside of that, I mean, I think Robert Covington is a pretty good bet to be here because he's cheap and he provides value and his shooting is is something that's coveted. But then by the same token, is there a chance that he could be a throw-in in a deal to make it a little bit more enticing to a team? Yeah, he absolutely could. Uh Orleans, Noel and Joel Embiid, I pretty firmly believe that one of them is going to be traded, and probably relatively soon, quite possibly even this offseason. I don't know which one, so I certainly can't say one of those are going to be here long term. There's just not a guy that you look at and say, that's the guy who's going to be here long term. That's, you know, a role player that's going to be here for the next five years. And I think that's a big part of why Sam Hankey is no longer the, the president of the Sixers, uh, because you just don't have that definable star or even that definable young talent who's going to be the face of the franchise.
1: Yeah, I think you hit on it really well there. And while it is completely understandable that they didn't get a star just because there haven't been that many in the last couple of classes and they haven't gotten lucky, you know, if they had gotten the number one pick, they would have. They would have drafted Carl Anthony Towns, and he would have been a star for them.
2: But I mean, no doubt. Look at look look at every every bad team that's gone through this process. Like the Lakers don't have a guaranteed absolute face of the franchise. You hope DeAngelo Russell is going to fix you know the problems that he had in his his rookie season, but you don't know. Julius Randle has his question marks. Dante Exum certainly has his question marks. Marcus Smart, for as good as he he plays defensively and how he changed the game, I mean, he's shooting thirty four percent. Like you just can't do that in the modern NBA. So I think every team, with the exception of really the Timberwolves, is really in a similar situation. And like you say, sometimes you just you hit those drafts where you don't have four or five or six franchise talents.
1: And at the same point, it is totally justifiable when, let's say, those clear cut guys are gone. Carltown's last class, you know, there've been a few, been very few in the last few years. It's completely justifiable when, when you're outside of that group and you have a high pick to aim more for ceiling than to focus more on having a high floor. And a lot of times high floor guys are those, as you said, the longtime role players, but that's a hard thing to do with the third overall pick.
2: No doubt. I mean, it's why Joel Embiid is such an enticing gamble yeah. because he is the type where if he ever works out, you know, he's a guy who's going to be on a team, and you're never going to have a chance to get Joel Embiid again if he's healthy. Uh, he's, I, I firmly believe he's that kind of talent. He's on the level of Carl anthony Towns. So, so much of the Sixers right now is defined by that draft and defined by Embiid not playing and Sarish not playing. But by the same token, it's a decision I will I will defend. Joel Embiid could never play a game, and I'll defend it, just because getting that kind of talent is so rare. But, yeah, it's, uh I mean, having certainty this far through, I've always said, you know, especially since Sam hinkie has been well, not fired, but he was—he quit because he was being marginalized. Sam either needed exceptional luck, which, quite frankly, getting the number one pick in the draft is exceptional luck, especially when they had—you know—I think about a fifteen percent chance of getting that last year. Or he needed exceptional patience from the ownership to see this through, and he just didn't get that.
1: Yeah, it was a—it was a really big ask, just in terms of the way that it happened. And my personal feeling is that as. As, and of course, this is me speaking for myself, is that I don't know if he could have bought himself much more time just with the way that this works, because I, while I agree with the process and I, I think it was a great idea and I think the team should follow it more often, you run into this trap with basically any franchise that being bad takes a lot out of everyone involved. And it, and so you get into the situation where it just becomes untenable, even if it was the justifiable point.
2: Yeah, no doubt. I think it was uh, it was much easier to green light, you know, three years ago when Sam Hinkey joined. And it's about three years ago to the day than it was to actually go through. And I think that the ownership and the management saw that. And I think maybe Sam Hinkey didn't. I think he kind of had this idealized view in his head that he was going to have the leeway he needed to execute his plan because there's no doubt. I mean people will point to his record and be like, he failed. There's no doubt in my mind that if he thought he didn't have the leeway to go through with this and the rope to execute this plan, he would have gone about it differently. He would have changed his course in this the third year. But, I mean, he should have seen the writing on the wall, especially if some of those reports earlier in the truth about whether or not front office or ownership would greenlight drafting Porzingis because they were worried about fan backlash. If any of that has any even sliver, sliver of truth, he should have recognized that you know he, doesn't, he, he has to alter his course just a little bit. Because as as great as maybe an ideological view like that is, what's even better is being able to see your plan you know, to its fulfillment.
1: Yeah, and that is the, the peril that GMs are in. And there is a line between that kind of realization and moving on that than doing what a GM does sometimes when they're trying to save their job. And what I think about with that sometimes is Brian Colangelo at the end of the time in Toronto, where I think he did a reasonably good job before that, but that's where you really start to see some of the perils.
2: Well, here here's the thing with Brian Colangelo. The Kyle Lowry trade, and for as bad as he's, as poorly as he's played in the playoffs, the Kyle Lowry trade is really what made them relevant again. Before he did that, he wanted to sign Steve Nash. You know, a 38-year-old breaking down Steve Nash. And you ask yourself why. Well, Nash, a native Canadian, you know, he wasn't from the Toronto area, but still native Canadian. He was beloved in Toronto. Coming back would have given them a short-term boost. He could have saved Brian Colangelo's job. Kyle Lowry didn't. But Kyle Lowry was so far and away the better long-term decision that you're right. There's such a difference between what's best for the franchise and what will what will keep me my job, and that's really to me the biggest, really impediment to good long-term decision making. And that's why the Sixers' strategy was so interesting. Not so much because Sam Hinkie's ideas were new or revolutionary, but because it seemed like the ownership group was new and revolutionary, and they were maybe looking at things a little bit differently than the reactionary culture that is sports. Uh, that is how we run our teams. And at the end of the day, you kind of found out, no, these guys are just like everybody else. They will succumb to some pressure. The weight of losing will alter their strategy. And, you know, I guess you lost some of that some of that night naivety. Uh, You just you you realize that these were, were people who had the same reactions that most normal humans do.
1: And one of the arguments that I've heard that uh, I, I attributed to my, my editor, Audie Joseph, was the idea that what happened with Drew Holiday and the injury disclosure didn't affect this, maybe not his relationship with ownership, but the relationship around the league, which is, I think, part of what led to Jerry Colangelo in the first place.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good question. And you wonder how much Sam really knew. You know, he, he came on about a month before that trade happened. Uh, certainly, he probably knew. But there's still just a little bit of a benefit of the doubt. You know, maybe, maybe he just didn't fully vet it. Maybe, cause all, all those, those injuries happened before he was there. But you, you know, you think with the, with the kind of guy Sam is, he probably did know. Yeah. And certainly that's not something that's, you know, th- that's happened before. Uh, I think, in fact, the Lakers were recently fined for the same thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's not good. I mean, when you withhold information like that, that certainly leaves a bad taste in people's mouths, no doubt.
1: And in terms of the optics, the other challenge with it is that it came out so much later that you forget that it happened so early in Hinky's tenure. You know, it's one of yes. those things that it, it gets the it gets the association. It gets the stink because it was like it was two years. I think it was two years after he'd been there. And so so you're not thinking, oh, yeah, you don't put it in that further context because it seems like so long ago that that he felt entrenched. And so you associate it with him.
2: And, I mean, you could make a similar case with the uh, Julio Okafor situation. You know, you look at, at he, he basically got in three off-the-court incidents this year. One of them was a speeding ticket. Uh, one of them was a fight in Old City, Philadelphia. And the other one was a fight in, in Boston. They all came out basically within, like, a two-week span of each other, which is when the Sixers were, like, 0-15 at the time. And the conclusion you jump to is, oh, losing is getting to Okafor. Well, when you go back and you look at it, the speeding incident happened after, like, their second preseason game. The fight in Philadelphia happened before they even played a preseason game. So jumping to that conclusion that these were the result of uh, of losing, it, it's not really logical. But because you didn't hear anything about it, the team didn't say anything about it, they didn't fine him, they didn't do any of this stuff, because they didn't do that at the time that it happened, now it all came out within a 2 weeks period when the team was 0-15 and, and all anyone could talk about was losing. And Maybe if they had just been a little bit more forthright with information and controlled the narrative just a little bit, You know, these were the kind of wins that Hinky could have gotten by controlling the narrative and playing the PR game that he just thought was beneath him. And he just really had no interest in and he thought it was a distraction. And all he wanted to do was worry about building the team. Well, again, these were the things. Maybe you don't think this is your job, but these are the things that could extend your job and give you that kind of security and at least maybe improve your, you know, how people view you enough that they're not all gunning for your head.
1: That's a great point. Let's turn to Nerlens Noel because, in some ways, I think he's the most interesting player that they have on the roster that's actually playing. I agree with you that Embiid is is a different thing, but there's not much that we can say right there. But so with Nerlens, I guess the question for you, as somebody who's around more closely, is: Do you think it is more likely than not that he becomes a starter in the NBA at center, or do you think it's less likely?
2: I think he's a starter. I think his defense is that good and that unique. And I think he's that versatile of a defender that I think he's a starter despite his offensive limitations. The question is, is, is he a starter on his team? And that's a much tougher question to me because, you know, perfect world Joel Embiid works out. He's your center. You're going to want to put him in a four-out offensive system. You know, you're going to want to put him with a pick-and-roll point guard, and you're going to want shooters all around him at two, three, and four spots to space the floor. Because I think with his size and athleticism and touch and, and footwork and feel for the game and coordination, he could be a real, real good pick-and-dive threat. But you can't do that really with Nerlens Noel next to him. So is 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 he just gonna be? Is Noel just gonna be like maybe a backup five? Is he gonna be a, 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 f- a four out of position like he was for much of this year? I'm not sure either of those really played to his strengths either. So the question comes, you know, how much, how many big men do you keep around while you have this uncertainty around Embiid? Obviously, you can't get rid of both Okafor and Noel now because if Embiid has another setback, you know, then you have, you have no big men depth. Uh, but you also can't really play either of them with Embiid. You can't really play – I mean, even Embiid or Noel and Okafor were both better when they had shooters at four, whether that's Robert Covington or even more of a face-up slasher like Jeremy Grant. So how, how much do you get rid of? I don't know. I don't know if, if Noel's going to be around here long-term. If it were my world, I think I would keep Embiid – I would keep Noel as kind of like Embiid insurance, and I would see what the market is for Okafor because I think his defense is that difficult to overcome – but I mean, especially with with the way that the, the front office has changed, I have absolutely no idea what they're going to do. And, you know, I, like I said, I do think Noel can be a starter in this league. I think on the right team that doesn't already have a center, I think his defense can really change the complexion of a team defensively. But I just don't know if it's going to be in Philadelphia.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with basically all that. And the way that I'm thinking about Philadelphia's big man situation is just that they have enough guys for 48 minutes at center. And that you a point that you just got to is that I think that what you want around them is very similar in terms of the one, two, three, four, but you it's hard to resolve all of that when you have such a log jam at that position, especially when moving one or more of those players will hopefully, will hopefully add to the players to solve the other problems. and so you know that what you get offered is really important. But the other huge factor with Noel and Embiid and Oak is the factor of time. Noel is eligible for a rookie extension this summer. Next year will be next year will be his last year on this cheap rookie scale contract. And as insane as it sounds, Embiid is only one year behind him.
2: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's uh, you know, Okafor, like you said, Noel has one year left, and then you have to extend him. And yeah, I mean, these are that's at the peak of the national TV deal when the cap will be one hundred seven million. That's going to be a big extension. Okafor is two years away, and or Okafor is three years away, and Embiid too. And especially with Embiid, you are just not going to get very much information. You know, you look at this year, they're probably not going to play him major minutes. You know, he might be playing 20, 25 minutes on, you know, that's kind of optimistic. He's going to sit back-to-backs probably at least at the beginning. They're going to be really cautious anytime there's any kind of soreness in that foot. You're just not going to get a whole lot of information, and especially if you want to get information on what his natural role will be going forward and what kind of lineups you're going to play with him going forward. If you had these three big men, it's just, like I said, your information is going to be very limited. So you almost you almost forced to make a decision early especially like you said with Noel's contract coming up and it's certainly a tough situation. It's uh you know ideally you would want to let these three play out, see which one kind of rises to the top, see whether or not Embiid's going to be healthy and make that decision from, you know, a a point where you're comfortable with the information you have. And it's just I don't think that's going to be an option the Sixers really have.
1: Yeah, in an ideal world, that's what the the 2015-16 season would have been, but that's just not the way it worked out. Yep. The other kind of big facet of the whole center dynamic with them that is working substantially in the Sixers' favor, though, is that both as a combination of the way contracts are going to be working in the near term but also just value of the position, there will be an interest in these guys even if their specific stock let's say, Okafor might be a little bit lower than it could be eventually. I think that the the overall valuation and hyperinflation of of everything is going to work to their advantage.
2: Yeah, it's uh, I mean, this rising salary cap is one of the most interesting dynamics in sports I've ever seen. And everything from, you know, how can you exploit that to what it means for coaches and front office salaries to what it means to training staffs and all these things that, you know, you're, you're getting this increase in revenue, but these aren't caps. It'll, uh, I mean, everything, like you said, everything from from player salaries to using that to your advantage to, I I mean, it's just, it's completely fascinating.
1: And with Okafor, even if you see him more as a guy, which I could see where he plays, let's say, 25 to 28 minutes a game, but I would use him as a guy who just murders second units, just have him out there. And then, you know, he plays, of course, that's more than, that's more than 20, less than 25 minutes a game, and then you play him interspersed with everyone else that's a really valuable thing as, as much as it's not you know that 20 million a year starter he might not get there we don't know he might not get there there that is still valuable and he has three more years of cheap contracts and then he has team control after that so yeah i mean of course if he was a, if he had a better rookie season his value would be higher but you know that if is if, if it had been that way then they weren't going to trade him
2: yeah i mean you know the question there is always a human dynamic and here's a guy who Just won a national championship as a focal point and has won everywhere he's been, was the third overall pick. In his mind, put up, you know, 17 and 7 as a rookie on, you know, efficiency, at least in terms of field goal percentage. That was probably better than I think most people would have expected. The odds of him playing, I think, 25 minutes off the bench and being happy about that is pretty slim. Now, like you say, you've got him under team control for three more years and realistically another five after that because of the, uh, restricted free agency. But could he then force his way out? Could he be you know, just the problem in the locker room. Uh, I think getting a guy to I, – I think what you say makes sense in letting him murder second units. I think there's been a lot of interesting research in that. But I think actually getting that to where you can you can do that and keep everyone happy would be a, a monu- monumental task for Brett Brown, Yeah, assuming and, he's still here.
1: And the other peril with it is so let's say you're playing him 28 minutes a game and you want somebody else to start, that starter is obviously going to be playing that many minutes or more. Then that means you're going to have to play them with that starter, and then you get in, run into the same issue that the Sixers are having.
2: Yep. And I mean, we can sit here and say, oh, it doesn't matter who starts, it doesn't matter who finishes, blah, blah, blah. In the end, it does, because Absolutely. it does to these players. And maybe it doesn't in terms of game plan. Maybe there's, there's real tactical reasons you would do that, but that human element I think is going to be difficult to overcome.
1: Of course, and I'm somebody who covers the Golden State Warriors and the Warriors had one of the most prominent examples of that in recent history as being a good team that asked two guys who had a lot of track record, yep, uh, Iguodala and David Lee to sit on the bench and that could have gone far more disastrously than it did.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you if you had different personality. I remember I think I think it was Bob Myers, I think he was talking about this at Sloan and he you know, he basically said like when we when we we signed Iguodala, we never in the, in, in our wildest dreams would have asked him to come off the bench. But we knew when we signed him that he would be willing to if we did. And I think that's such a key part. And it's kind of, you know, when you're drafting at the top of the draft, first of all, the information you get about a guy's mental makeup and personality and and willingness to be coached like that, it's just not as strong because everyone you talk to is biased in some way or another. And also it's just you only have so many options when you're drafting at number three because – if a guy is so far and away the best talent available, you kind of have to try to make that work, especially in a situation with the Sixers where they have so little talent. You know, it's fascinating what the Warriors were able to do, but that's such a unique circumstance, both because of the, you know, temperaments of a guy like Igadala and also just the great depth of that team. It's a lot easier to ask a veteran to come off the bench when he's playing for an all-time great team than it would be for Okafor, who, you know, even if they, they even if Embiid plays next year, and Okafor comes off the bench, they're still probably winning about 25 games.
1: Yeah, that, that's definitely there. Uh, before we get in, I want to talk about some of the other players on the roster, but I think, especially considering your interest in it, we should talk a little bit about Dario Saric. And let's start with the the possibility or the likelihood that he comes over, but also what he is as a player, because I think you and I both really like him, and what that means for the team moving forward.
2: Yeah, I mean, the interesting part about the Sixers' front court rotation is that none of the pieces fit, and that's kind of been the most criticized part It's certainly the part where I look at and I say, I I don't know how you're going to resolve the situation. So on the one hand, you look at Sarge and say, great, another big man. That's not really what they need. But they really do need a a big man of his skill set. His three-point shooting has steadily improved over the years. That's backed up by a free throw shooting that I think went from like the low 60s to the upper 70s over the last three years. And I think he shot about 37 percent from the, uh, you know, from the FIBA three-point line, which is somewhere right about in the middle of the NBA and the college three-point line. So that shooting is, is very valuable. His court vision and ability to pass, both in transition and, and creating off the dribble, is extremely valuable. And his skill set just aligns up very well with playing next to Embiid or playing next to Noel. Uh, I think you could, you could make a very good case that even with the highly talented three front court players the Sixers have, their best front court option might be Embiid and Sarge, which is kind of crazy to think about considering not, neither of them played at all for the team last year. Uh, I, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch. He obviously has, you know, just a lot of defensive concerns. He doesn't move his feet all that well. His wingspan, he just doesn't have the physical attributes to really defend. Certainly the three, which some people think he is, but especially even the four, where so many more players are perimeter focused, and you're asked to defend so many more switches than you were, you know, five to ten years ago, he's going to struggle in that regard. But he offers so much on the offensive end that the Sixers need. You know, he might not come in and be a star. I think he's going to be a very important piece and just an absolute blast to watch with the way he plays the game.
1: And something that gets lost in the shuffle a little bit, it's funny because I get into all these arguments with people about C.J. McCollum, and, so, and the argument for me is, unless you're a center, if you can provide substantial value on offense, it's worth it. Because that's why you have a good defensive center, is to clean up the mistakes of everybody else. So if you have somebody, especially who can defend a position other than point guard, which of course Sarge does, if they can initiate plays, if they can, you know, help in run run things in transition, anything like that, you are getting such a value because there are just aren't that many individuals in the league who can do that.
2: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's uh, you know, if if Sarge were matched up with, say, Okafor, his defense would trouble me a lot more. But when you're pairing him, the two guys who could really be elite defenders in Noel or Embiid, you know, it's something I'm a little more willing to overlook, especially if he can he can provide. That floor spacing—that's just ever so crucial for both of those guys.
1: And from what you're hearing, it is expected that he's going to come over for the 2016-17 season.
2: Everything you've ever heard since he was drafted three years ago has been that he's going to come over at his first opportunity, and it makes absolutely no financial sense to me because he would—he is one year away from being unbound to that rookie scale contract, and he could certainly make a lot more money by waiting. But everything you've ever heard, every report, every firsthand you know, relay of what he said to his teammates or to his his family has been that he is coming over this summer. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's fascinating in that sense, because he is doing that and you could say, oh, well, if he came over later, then, you know, he might be, he might be getting free agency earlier, but that's not necessarily true because if you look at like Miritich, Miritich signed a three-year deal. So if he th- signed a three-year deal for 6 million next summer, that's a lot more money, but I'm thrilled if he comes over now just as a basketball fan, because It also lets the Sixers have so much more information before 2017, which could be a gigantic year for the long-term direction of the franchise.
2: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, like you said, there could be a case to be made that he could make more money by getting to a second contract earlier. But since he's now not bound by that four-year rookie scale, he can dictate his own terms and sign that three-year deal. I mean, there's just a lot of financial incentive. But, I mean, if he comes over, that's great. And like I said, every report that you hear is that he's coming over. And there certainly could be a case... Well, first of all, with the uncertainty going on in Turkey, I think that is is certainly something that, I don't think it's necessarily one of the reasons, but if he was up in the air, it seems like it, it could be a, a help, at least. Um, but certainly, if there are just some people who want to compete against the best in the league, and he's 22 now, he's not 20, 20 years old like he was when he signed the, the deal, he's now 22, 23. He's a little more physically prepared to do so. If he's a guy who just wants to compete against the best in the world, you know, who am I to argue?
1: Yeah, a couple of guys that Of course, you watch the Sixers a lot more than I do, that I was interested in. We'll start with Rashawn Holmes. I liked a lot of what I saw from him. What did you see this year? And let's say we were looking two years into the future. What do you think a good role for him would be?
2: I think what you saw was a guy who could, first of all, really finish at the rib. Uh, And he's an incredible athlete. He's strong. He's got the upper body strength to play through contact. And he has great touch. And he really looked comfortable, you know, setting a pick and rolling the basket and playing off the ball in that regard. I think what you really want to see, first of all, you want to see his jump shot get a little bit more consistent. He's got kind of like this weird knuckleball thing going on. And sometimes he makes it, he's kind of got that hand-eye coordination where he can do that, but a little bit more refinement, and that might be a little bit more consistent, and that would be big for him. The big question is going to be his defensive rebounding. I mean, it was just, you know, he, he rebounded like a mediocre small forward, and that's, that's not going to get it done. I don't know exactly what his, his percentage was, but I think his defensive rebounding percentage was about 12%. And that's just not really tenable in today's NBA where, you know, I th- offensive rebounding is obviously deprioritized a little bit. We we prioritize getting back in transition so much. But you still can't let up as many offensive rebounds as, as he did and get away with that at his position. And also, you know, his, his just defense overall. He's a guy who clearly has the capability to block shots and block shots at a pre- pretty decently high level. You know, his decision-making on that end still – you know, he looked like a rookie, and he looked like a, a rookie coming from Bowling Green and maybe not facing all that great competition because he tried to block everything. And certainly, I think that was part of the reason that his, his rebounding was so low. And I think just kind of like reining him in just a little bit, making him focus a little bit more on his rotations and his positioning, and I think he has quite a bit of defensive potential, but he's just not there yet.
1: I think that's a good summary of it. My instinct is that, at least as of now, of course, we can, we'll can we get more information I think he's more of a of a second second unit power forward, but when he a guy's under contract to make about a million a year for the next three years after this season, that's fine.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's dead on.
1: Along that same lines, Jeremy Grant, he only has two more years, but both are non-guaranteed. I like him too, but I think he's more of a second unit guy.
2: Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I think what, I, what I'll say about Jeremy Grant, you know, first of all, his ability to block shots from the wing, and he, he kind of plays a 3-4 combo, is truly unique. And he's such a great athlete that if you just gave him a reliable corner three, I think he could develop into a starter in this league. But now that that question, whether he can develop a reliable corner three, is a very big question and one that he maybe didn't make all that much progress on this year, which was a little disappointing. I mean, he's so athletic. He got better, I think, at finishing at the rim. You know, last year he just seemed like he tried to dunk everything he could. And that was entertaining at times, but not, not quite as effective. And this year he just he did a much better job of you know, being a little more measured in his approach, being a little bit more under control driving the basket. And I think that I think that showed in the results. Uh, he improved his rebounding a little bit, which is important for a guy who's going to play at four. But yeah, without that reliable jump shot and that reliable corner three, I think you're right in that he's probably a, a, a second unit player, but he's certainly a guy who can provide some value.
1: Yeah, exactly. And when uh, somebody's making peanuts, you can definitely live with that. And I also, I felt this way for a long time with the Sixers that, they have a lot of guys, and Noel is in this group too, that when they get, if if and when, they get better talent around them, I think that they will look a lot better. New Orleans Noel is a support player. If he's your fourth or fifth best offensive player and your first or second best defensive player, that's a whole lot better than him jumping up to, let's say, like third on the offensive pecking order.
2: Right, exactly.
1: So, okay, outside of those guys... You have Stauskis who, from what I saw, looked like a massive disappointment. You can tell me if that's right, but if, if let's say, you agree with me, then do you start to bring up the question of whether his last-year player option gets picked up?
2: Oh, I think there's absolutely a chance. I mean, this is—I you know, I think th- this was—they picked up his third-year player option last, last fall. Uh, but whether or not he gets his last one picked up, I think that is, is v- a very fair question. I mean, he really came along in terms of his shooting towards the end of the season. And he seems like a player who— desperately needs that kind of confidence when he's making his shots and playing with confidence. All of a sudden you see a guy who has a little more athleticism than I think people give him credit for has a little bit better ball skills and can create off the dribble and can pass a little more than people give him credit for. But when he's not making that shot, he just kind of sits in a corner and doesn't do much for you. And for a guy whose defense is as bad as Stauskas is, you can't have him doing that. You need him. You need him playing an active role in the offense to really provide value and far too frequently, he just doesn't do that. Uh, so he really needs to come out. First of all, he's gotta, he's gotta get physically stronger. He needs to be able to compete defensively. He needs to work on his, his lateral mobility. He needs to get better fighting through screens and playing defense. But he also needs to come out and shoot the ball better to start the season. I mean, I think he was shooting about 26% through the first two months of the season. And for a guy whose really only value is shooting, you just need him to come out of the gate stronger. Because both years he's been in the league, he's turned around in the second half. But by that point, You know, you just don't know what you're going to have. So, yeah, I mean, he's certainly a disappointment. I don't think Sixers fans really had that high of hopes for him. You know, I think you look at that trade, and I think even when it happened, you were looking at that, you know, 2018-2019 pick that the Kings or the Sixers. You were looking at the two pick swaps, and that was really the focal point of that. But certainly, I mean, Stauskas is a young player, a player who was drafted eighth overall in a pretty strong draft, and a player who has some physical tools to go along with that shooting. But he needs to actually start putting that together.
1: Yeah. The guy that I think of was Stauskas, not that he's near this caliber, but you think about the str- the struggles that Anthony Morrow has had getting on the floor in Oklahoma City. Obviously a team that is much higher level that has greater competition for that kind of a niche. But Morrow is one of the best catch-and-shoot guys I've ever seen. And his defense isn't great. It's better than Stauskis's, but it's not that much better. And even at that level, he has trouble. And so I think Stauskas should look at that and say, if I'm going to make it in this league, I have to be better at everything else than a guy like Anthony Morrow. And he can get there. He, I liked him. I didn't like him as high as the Kings drafted him, but I did like him as a guy. His his ball handle was was interesting, like a guy who could pay, maybe do some secondary stuff. And he has the physical tools to at least not be terrible defensively.
2: Yeah. No. I mean, he if he puts on some weight gets them better defensive stances, engage more on that, and he can certainly at least be playable. Uh, but he's, I mean, he, he's got to make that actually happen now. I mean, he's far too talented to struggle the way he has. But, I mean, the Sixers are also in a perfect position to give him that chance. So, we'll see.
1: A guy that I love, his physical potential, and the Sixers, you know, dropped him and then brought him back. What do you think about Christian Wood right now?
2: Uh, I mean, I think he's certainly got a lot of potential, but I'm not sure Brett Brown really trusts him and trust that he's going to put in the work, and trust that he's going to make the right decisions. Uh, I mean, the Sixers have basically been a tryout for D-league caliber guys the last three seasons. And Christian Wood was kind of the one guy who couldn't get off the bench. And you kind of ask yourself why. And certainly, you know, the Sixers' depth in the front court was a factor in that. But By the same token, at the end of the year, you know, Embiid was obviously out. Nerlens Noel was out for a lot. Okafor was out for a lot. Rash- Rashawn Holmes was out for quite a bit of time. And Christian Wood was still kind of stapled to the bench. And you kind of wonder why, for a team that has put up with so much inexperience and clearly wasn't trying to win in the short term, why he wasn't getting any real time. And he's certainly a guy who has you know, just a world of physical tools. You know, but this was a guy who went undrafted because of question marks around his maturity, who came to the NBA Combine and somehow measured with like 16% body fat despite weighing about 250, 215 pounds. I mean, you wonder how a guy could do that if you put in any work at all in the weight room? I think there's a lot of question marks. I would kind of be surprised if he's still on a team next year, just because of the amount of big men that they have and, and how they're going to want to use those roster spots. Less on trying out young talent and more on finding guys who can fill roles and kind of form a cohesive team. But certainly you hope that he's a guy, you know, maybe he's a guy like Hassan Whiteside who takes a couple of years, has to spend some time in the D League, maybe overseas, but can finally come back when he's a little bit more mature and harness that, that physical potential. Because you're absolutely right. He does have the talent and and the physical ability to play in this league.
1: Yeah, his struggles this year have made me think that it's better for him to spend some time in the wilderness. You you mentioned this on Whiteside. I was going to bring Whiteside up too, is that when somebody has the physical tools but doesn't put it together, Sometimes they can do that in the league. It certainly has happened before, but that's a better way to do it. And also, it's more likely in today's NBA because then they're not assuming the risk. And when a player is talented and doesn't have it, you know, sometimes they just never put it together. It, it certainly does happen. A lot of times that occurs before a guy even really gets an NBA shot, thinking about somebody like Bernardo Sidney, you know, that, that kind of fell by the wayside before the draft proce- process. But you give given that shot, and fortunately for Christian Wood— there are a lot of different ways that you can get paid to play basketball and if you, if he works his butt off can can make his way back in.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And I mean so 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 many young kids I feel like kind of avoid the overseas path and they don't want to give up that NBA dream too quickly. And you kind of feel like once you're out of the league it's it's hard to get back in. And I'm sure there's some truth to that. But there's just so much opportunity overseas to not only make money but to play and to play against grown men and to play against real you know, teams that have real cohesive offensive sets and play really well together as a team that you kind of, you know, let a kid go over there, get out of his comfort zone, get out of his, you know, maybe away from all the trappings of family and friends or or, or maybe whatever helps you fall into these bad habits and just shock your system a little bit and get over there and play and play and play. And I wouldn't completely hate it if Christian would have went over there and did something similar to that.
1: Yeah, and also when you have a player who has kind of shown a lack of a lack of kind of drive, you need to see if they if they really care about it enough to do that because if they don't, it is incredibly hard, especially for somebody who while he has a lot of physical gifts, he's not, you know, like 7-6 or something crazy like that. It's almost impossible to make it in the NBA if you if you don't if you don't love it in that way because it's just the players are that good. Yeah, no doubt. So there are a bunch of other guys on this roster. I don't think we need to spend as much time on them. But what? So what I was thinking is, I'll, I'll say the name, and you you say whether if it were your decision whether you would pick up for all of them. It's a really it's a really cheap contract for next season. Does that sound good? Sure. T.J. McConnell. Yeah, absolutely. Hollis Thompson. Uh,
2: probably not. Kendall Marshall. No.
1: While he doesn't have an option, Isaiah Cannon. Uh,
2: let me know what ha- I'll let you know after the draft. I I know we're supposed to go quickly. I think That's it would fine. be really interesting if you drafted a guy like Ben Simmons who's going to control the ball in the half court, and you can get a little more creative with your point guard because he's a guy who can shoot, and he can shoot the heck out of the ball, but he's six foot and has no point guard skills. But if you were asking him to defend the one but still be an off-the-ball player, I think he might be able to give you a 10 to 15 minute per game role. So I'd have a little interest if they added a guy like Simmons, but if you asked him to be a point guard, then no.
1: Yeah, that's a, a really important point to make. And actually, thank you for, for leading us deliberately or not deliberately into the segue <laughs> of going into the draft. And I doubt that you know kind of where the team is right now. Of course, if you do you can share that. But I think that the most important numbers right now for the Sixers would be the top four. So if if you were like if you were thinking about this as as from a Sixers specific perspective, how would the top four on your board look?
2: Well I still think you have to go not have to go, but I would still go Ben Simmons number one. Uh, it would be very difficult for me to pass on a guy who has that kind of, you know, passing ability, creativity, and real feel for the game. And I know all the concerns. You know, we, we all saw him just completely implode down the stretch. But I have to be 100% sure that that's not a resolvable problem. That's just not a temporary situational thing to pass on him. And certainly his defense was not good enough. We all saw, you know, his, his laziness off the ball. We saw him get beat on the ball. But he's also a guy who has some tools on that end. Not perfect tools, but again, in a, in a league where really what you want to see is a guy be able to switch pick and rolls and defend different positions. you know He has some of that in him, and he can certainly rebound the heck out of the ball. I would have still have to go Ben Simmons number one because I think that creativity on offense is, is so valuable.
1: I agree with you wholeheartedly, specifically in terms of the Sixers, because the value that that is added—we talked about this a little bit with Saric—the value that is added by having a guy who can initiate or who can do positive offensive things without having to defend point guards is so valuable, and Cannon is a great example of why. Is because there are a bunch of players in this league who defend point guards but should not be running an offense, and— all of them would be better suited to play with somebody like Ben Simmons, especially if that other guy can shoot. And there just aren't enough Ben Simmons's, James Harden, you know, that, that type of guy who can really, who can really initiate, create. That's part of the reason the Warriors are, are doing really well despite missing Stephen Curry. You know, those guys don't exist very much. And if you, of course, if you have, if you have that figured out, you know, if you, if you have d'angelo russell and you trust him to be that guy that's a little bit different but the sixers don't have that guy
2: yeah i mean having having a guy at a non-standard position to initiate your offense is so interesting to me because first of all it allows you a lot more creativity in designing the rest of your offense but also it just puts defenders you know a, a power forward isn't used to being to defending the ball handler in a four or five pick and roll like having a four or five pick and roll with with simmons and Embiid to me would just be so interesting and watching how you know, guys who aren't accustomed to defending that, how they react and, and and really seeing how that can open up your offense and seeing how, you know, you, we, we put so much emphasis on shooting at the power forward spot in part to open up the lane for other ball handlers. Well, it's a lot easier to get elite shooting at the one, two and three spots and now have Simmons initiate your offense. So when you have a guy and, you know, when I watch Ben Simmons, everyone says, oh, he's a great passer for a power forward. No, he's just a great passer like his his passing is great no matter what position you put him at. And to have that at that position, I think is such an advantage that it would be even if it doesn't work out, it would be fascinating to watch
1: And the reason that we fetishize shooting at the four is because there aren't guys who can handle the ball. If you can right. do that, it's more valuable. And, and you talked about four or five pick and rolls, which I, I agree with as well. but part of the other another part of the reason why I love Simmons is that in either four, two or one four pick and rolls, if get you can get a, if you can get a switch, yep. like, I don't love him as a back to the basket player against guys his size, but if you can get that switch, then you can do that, and I think that's part of the reason why a player like Kevin Love has value is because, yeah, he's not that he's not as good as people think he is at posting up guys his size, but you can create those mismatches, and then you exploit it in those circumstances, and you don't have to run it the rest of the time.
2: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, for, for all the talk about what this league is, it's still about getting a mismatch, exploiting it, and causing the defense to rotate. And I think Ben Simmons is going to be able to do that as well as anyone in the draft.
1: Agreed. I'm guessing you have Ingram, too?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's... To me, the top two is a no-brainer. It's just which order you have them in.
1: And also, I, I should mention that if they theoretically were able to find a person who can initiate the offense at any one of the other positions, I think Ingram would be a wonderful fit with the other guys they have at the three or the four.
2: Oh, yeah. Ingram would be great with Embiid, and Ingram would be great with Okafor. Like, he... he. I mean, part of what makes him so interesting is that he you can legitimately... Plug and play him in, in virtually any system in the league, and he would fit. Uh, and if he develops a little more as a defender, you know there just aren't many two way small forwards like that. So uh, I mean, I if I say I would take Ingram or Simmons number one, it's no slight at all to Ingram uh, because I think he's a fantastic prospect as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. The big opening then is at three, and there are a lot of different avenues to go. Who do you like the best for Philly if that was where they end up?
2: Well, this is another one. People are going to say they have no need for another big man. Uh, but like we talked about with Sarge, having a guy like Simmons who can shoot and who can really move his feet. When I watch, uh, when I watch Bender, I mean, you look at him and what makes him completely unique besides the fact that he's 7-1 and can shoot is how well he can move his feet on the perimeter. And you, you watch them, you watch Maccabi, and they really asked him to defend the small forward probably more than you would ever expect a, a seven footer to, but he could get away with that. And like we talked about earlier in this podcast, it's so important for a four to be able to switch pick and rolls, to be able to pick up different men in transition, and be able to hold his own. And he can do that. And he he, he plays hard. You know, he, he works on his game. He seems like a good kid. He shows a little bit of ball skills. You're going to have to be really patient with Bender. And I think people maybe saw the success that, you know, Porzingis had. Porzingis was playing big minutes in the ACB. Now, his team stunk, but that allowed him to really get, you know, a lot of playing time against really strong competition Bender's not like that. And I think you're going to have to wait for his body to mature. I think you're going to have to wait for his game to mature. But the skills that he brings, I would still have him third overall.
1: There's some weird stuff with his contract, right?
2: From what I understand, he has an out. Uh, he's, he's, he's under contract, but the buyout, he has a buyout, and it is reasonable enough. And he's unhappy there. Okay. Uh, you know, I, so many of these young kids that teams know have ambitions to go to the NBA. There's no real benefit to them to develop them because you look at Bender right now, and especially in, in, in that league, and he's playing against 28- against and 30-year-old men. He's going to be a negative on the court right now. That's just the way it is. Now, in the NBA, he's going to be drafted by a team that's, you know, winning 25 games and, and is okay with that because they want him to get better, and they're worried about what's oh, going to be three, four, five years down the road. There's no benefit right now for Maccabi to, you know, play him and, and develop him because they're not going to have him, and they know that. So I think he's unhappy with his playing time. I think Maccabi would take the money from a buyout and from what I understand it's very likely he comes over next year.
1: Well that yeah that definitely helps his helps his value then. And yeah, I I think what I like about Bender when I watch him is that he just makes sense in the NBA uh, eventually. Not not right now. He'll he'll make sense as a guy who can fill that role. And I think offensively he'll figure it out enough to that if, if especially if he can stick at the four defensively that'll work. I don't trust him at all as a rim protector, but if he can defend the four, it doesn't matter. Like the whole reason that you get when you get into trouble, let's say with a guy like Jaleel Oak for is that he can't defend can't move fours. His feet at all. Yeah. yeah, he can't defend fours, so then his defense at the five matters. Like, if Nikola Vucevic could defend fours, I wouldn't be whining about his defense incessantly because he'd be defending fours. So right. if Bender I mean, can do that, then you're fine.
2: To me, Bender's essentially a small ball power forward who just happens to be seven foot one. Like, he he really moves his feet like a small ball power forward does. So when you look at that, and I, I have confidence in his jump shot long term, when you... Add that with being seven foot one. I mean, his his shot's gonna be very tough to defend, uh, and and he's just he's he's just gonna get the more balls because he's tall. Uh, I mean, he's to me very interesting in that you just don't get seven foot one guys who can shoot and move their feet like that. And is he perfect? No, but I think those skill sets are so unique and so valuable in the way the NBA is trending that he doesn't really have to be a perfect prospect to still be incredibly valuable.
1: How about number four?
2: Number four is where it gets really interesting for me um i actually I, I like timothy luau quite a bit he's actually wow. number five on my board but i would still go chris dunn number four um you know i don't necessarily want to draft a point guard because the sixers need a point guard and dunn's turnovers concern me quite a bit and his shooting you know i think you look at his three point percent just like 37 percent he's not that good of a shooter i've never seen a guy who his results are so erratic like he'll drain two of them in a row falling through the net softly, and the next one's three feet off the left, and you just go, how did that happen? Like, it's not even under duress where you would you, it would explain it. Both of those are big deals to me at point guard. And you look at his athleticism and his physical profile, and they're absolutely elite for the position. You know, he can he can split a double team, split a pick, and get to the hoop with the best of them, but he struggles to finish, he struggles with turnovers, and he struggles with shooting. Those concern me. But that being said, there's so much uncertainty after three in this draft, and really after two in this draft, that I'll take at least those physical tools and that, that real passing ability, and I'll work with that and just see, and see if I can hit a home run.
1: And the argument for me with him is the same argument that I made for Cameron Payne last year and will make for Tyler Ulis this year, which is that even if it doesn't work, even if he's not a starter, if he's a 20-minute-a-game player at point guard, a guy who can run the offense imperfectly but still do that, on this rookie scale— he is ludicrously valuable. Like that, yeah. that kind of a thing. That's enough. He'll defend. He'll defend really well. I, th- I think he can. You know, he'll he'll get after it on that end. And even if he doesn't do that, then you then you can get that. And and while you want to aim higher in that sense, if at a certain point having that kind of a floor is very different than like a jump shooting two or even a defensive three. You know, it's just a very different thing. And I I, I don't know that I have done fourth. But I, but I can see a rationale behind it, especially for a lot of teams.
2: Yeah. And I mean it's uh you know, don't don't mistake that as being in love with Dunn. Yeah. Uh, I just have a lot of uncertainty with everyone in that range, and he's kind of the one that I'm willing to gamble on. You know, basically anyone you draft you select in this draft after two, you're betting on improvement above the meat. You know, if you look at maybe maybe typical development curves, you're betting on a guy who's going to exceed that. And to me, if Dunn does, then he could be the best player among that group. And that's why I'd select him. But I still, if you're going to ask me if I think Dunn's going to be a top 10 or 15 point guard in this league, you know, probably not. And that to me, drafting somebody who doesn't have that kind of a likely outcome is certainly a little bit scary. I mean, that's why if the Lakers pick, you know, the Sixers basically have the Lakers pick if it falls at four or five. If not, it's a 2017 top three protected first round pick. I would be okay letting that thing roll over to next year and being a 2017 pick. Because I think there's a very real chance that the 7, 8, even 9 pick in next year's draft could end up being a more valuable player than the number 4 pick in this year.
1: Yeah, the only thing that run against, runs against that is the possibility of the rookie scale changing. But I don't think that difference, because the structural incentives just aren't there for to be like, oh, let's morally, morally, let's pay the young guys. Like, that just doesn't really exist. So I think that those picks will, will be incredibly valuable. That draft class looks a lot better. I was going to go in a different direction, but I feel like since you just mentioned Walu, what, what do you love about him?
2: Well, I mean, the chance there's just not that many real 3 and D wings. And you add in, you know, I think, first of all, the, the progress he made in his jump shot, I think he shot about 37% this year. That was important. He was in the, the mid-20s last year. Uh, he has a lot of ball skills and that he can make good decisions with the ball. You know, he's six seven, athletic, can get out and transition. And he, I think he has a lot of defensive potential. And I think right now that's mostly potential, and you know, I don't think he really knows how to harness that yet. I think he's he's caught off balance a lot. You can get beat by misdirection, can be get beat off the ball, struggles to fight through screens. But if you ask me what he's going to be in four or five years when he's physically developed and has a little bit more understanding of the nuances of NBA defenses, he certainly has the tools to become a plus defender. So if you have a you know six seven wing who's athletic and playing transition, can shoot the three, can make good decisions with the ball, and can be an above average defender. I think that's tremendously valuable. And in a sea of uncertainty, that is, you know, the second half of the lottery in this draft, I just think he's a really compelling option. Now, what I do think, I think a lot of people see his athleticism, and they see maybe his passing, and they think he's a guy who's going to create a ton of offense. I just don't see that. He really struggles finishing at the basket in a big way. And I think that's probably going to hold him back from becoming a number one or number two option. But I think he could be a three or four option that just provides a lot of value all over the court. And part of that is the fact that I just don't like many of the other options that are there. Uh, I'm not a big fan of Buddy Heel, I'm not a big fan of Jamal Murray. Sixers have no real need or in- should have interest in uh, Jakob Pertl. So it's a lot of uncertainty in that range. And again, he and his skill set and the player I think he's going to develop into, to me, is just more enticing.
1: Yeah, and I I agree with you also that this, the Sixers specific angle of it makes him more, more interesting because he provides a value to them that with some of the other guys like Pirtle, as you mentioned, that they don't really need. But as you know, because we've discussed it, one of the things that I've been really fixated on is how lucky the Sixers are that the Kings are going to keep their pick this year because of how that affects the future obligations with that trade.
2: I mean, that trade, I, I can't speak highly enough of that trade. It still boggles my mind that these Sixers were able to pull it off. Then you add the, I think it was Zach Lowe who said that uh, Vlade maybe didn't know about the stretch provision at the time and that whole thing was unnecessary. Uh, I mean, if if you're going to look at the options the Sixers have, you know, they could they could start building this thing. Let's say they win, you know, Brian Colangelo comes in, he trades one of the bigs for maybe, a you know, a good piece at a position they need, signs some role player in free agency, not a great player, but a role player, and Joel Embiid plays and they win let's say 27 30 games which would be an incredible turnaround but by same token winning 27 games in the nba isn't exactly rocket science they could still have a top three pick just based on that pick swap then you look further down the line and when maybe joel Embiid's entering his physical maturity and they've had some time to put the pieces around they could have an unprotected first round pick from the kings in 2019 i mean if there's one organization that you want an unprotected future pick from it has to be the dysfunctional kings which all happens to be the year after Cousins' contract runs out. So it's just the, the forward thinking of that move to me is, is fascinating, and it's a great move, and it's part of why I had faith that eventually, you know, maybe the moves Hinky made haven't panned out yet, but it gave me confidence that eventually they were going to get this thing right.
1: Yeah, that move is the one that really swings swings that for me. Also, as small as it was, being able to swing Jason Thompson for Gerald Wallace was really great for their balance sheets just cuz it didn't cost them anything. It saved the Warriors money and it really cleared out their books a little bit, you know. That, that was a better contract. I I'm, I I'm, was great that they made that that small kind of addition to it that took away a very very minimal amount of the sting. And while there is certainly the possibility that the Kings trade to Marcus Cousins between now and when he when he hits free agency, the important part of that and why I've been so fixated on this is that it is prohibitively unlikely that even if they do a good job in that trade, that the Kings are good in 29 in 2018, 2019. Like that's just too early for them to have turned it around. And so if they if they'll have lost him by then, so well I mean, presumably he could resign, I guess. But it's a perfect time for them. Like, if you could, if I could pick any year to say this is the time that we want an unprotected pick, I think it would be Sacramento in 2019, and that's the pick they got.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, I think when you look out years down the line and, and you know various places rate these, I think ESPN uh, lists out the most valuable future picks owed, and a lot of times that doesn't extend out to 2019. It might be like two or three years in the future. But I think if you looked at it, that very well might be the most valuable future draft pick owed. And it might be, you know, the Lakers pick might be right up there with it. Uh, maybe not quite as valuable because this draft is relatively weak. But they just have so many options for even if, you know, a lot of times you worry about maybe going forward too quickly because you don't have the stud pieces to really build a contender around. The Sixers, kind of like, like Boston, which I think is why Boston is such an interesting position, have so many other options outside of their own picks that they don't necessarily have to now get caught in that, perpetual tanking that maybe they're currently associated with.
1: Yeah, Boston's a great parallel also because when your success doesn't impede your ability to get a great player, I think that is it's great for develop kind of for the process everywhere because you don't have to you don't have to be conscious of it at all. You know, the, the the Celtics can do whatever they want to do. And of course, they can consider the, the Nets picks as assets, but they're going to do what they're going to do and you can't really control it. So that made, you know, while it was, I think it was really unfortunate for them long term that they made the playoffs last year just because if they had, let's say they had gotten Miles Turner, which is who I think they would have probably had the opportunity to get if they'd missed the playoffs, that would be a big answer for them. But, you know, that's not a devastating thing.
2: Can you imagine Brad Stevens with the shot blocker? As an NBA fan, that's kind of one of the things I want to see happen. I want to see Brad Stevens get a legitimate defensive big and see what that defense can really do because what he's done with, you know, limited bigs defensively has been nothing short of remarkable.
1: Same with Steve Clifford. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I I spent a fair portion of this season wondering if they hadn't if they hadn't done what they did on Biombo, how awesome he would have been for them this year.
2: Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, there's a lot of... You know, Boston's going to be really interesting to watch because I think Danny Ainge is starting to get an itchy trigger finger and for as much success as they've had, And maybe more success than people expected. I think he's starting to feel a little bit of pressure to get that. You know, all all their moves have been really made to eventually kind of James Harden a superstar. And I think he's feeling a little bit of pressure to get that done. Obviously, that Nets pick, I think they're what? The third best chance of winning a lottery. That Nets pick is going to be huge, whether or not they they make it or they use it to, you know, make a trade and and acquire that piece. Uh, You almost wonder with how close they are and how, how competitive they are if they're going to feel compelled to trade that pick for somebody who's a little bit more established but it'll it'll be interesting to watch for sure
1: and the sixers potentially depending on what they're looking at both actually the sixers and the lakers could be could be possible trade partners with the sixers just because if they're looking for players that are a little bit more cost control like obviously if you want to get a, a cousins or you know a james harden those that's a little bit different but if you want to if you're going a step down and you you're antsy about that pick you know, some of the guys the Sixers have could be interesting.
2: Yeah. I mean, they they reportedly had interest in Okafor at the deadline. So you wonder if, you know, maybe that pick ends up at three and they're not looking at Simmons or Ingram. You know, are they going to revisit that? And would Brian Clangelo revisit that now if there's a change in ownership or a change in management? A, a lot of potential for movement this off season, I think.
1: So we'll talk about the draft more generally. You're somebody who knows a lot about it. And we don't. I don't want to get too down to the nitty-gritty, but the way to, to approach it for me is what players in this draft do you just like? Maybe you, think you like them more than other people, but are just people that, that you think highly of at any level in the draft.
2: Well, I mean, I think we clearly touched on one in Luau. You know, I like him quite a bit. I think most people have maybe late lottery. Uh, I would certainly have him, you know, in my in my top ten for sure. Uh, like I said, he couldn't even be as high as five. I like, you know, I think one another international guy actually that I like, is Isaiah Cordinier, a guy playing in second level France, uh, just really out there in the basketball world. He's like six four, six five, and like 175 pounds, just tiny. I mean, he he's going to struggle in the biggest way, but he can. I mean, he can get up. He's he's an elite athlete. His shot has really improved. He can create off the dribble. He's got good body control, and I think he's a guy who could end up being you know you could greatly outdraft your slot if you're looking in the twenties. Uh, he's just a guy I have a lot of interest in, I think is is pretty well underrated. And I get the concerns, you know, when you have a guy that young that's played against that little competition and is, is, quite frankly, that physically immature. But there's also, you just don't get guys who can shoot, who can handle the ball, who can finish at the rim and have that kind of you know explosive leaping ability. They're hard to find. And I think he's the kind of guy he might end up flaming out, but I would take a risk on him. Uh he's a guy I have quite a bit of, of interest in. I think uh Chris Karis Levert, you know, I think his injuries have kind of overshadowed how good of a player he's been at Michigan over the last four years. I think DeAndre Bembry is an interesting player later on in the first round. You know, I think he does so many different things well, from defense to passing to rebounding to shot blocking. I mean he can he can really do everything from the wings. The one thing he can't do is shoot. So maybe he takes a little bit more of a limited role. You know, a lot of times you have these number one options and they take a step back and now they're the third or fourth or fifth option and they don't really know how to handle that and they don't have a diversified enough game to handle it. I think Bembry the kind of guy he could, you know, move back and be a role player and could excel at it. And I think he could, you know, be a, a really interesting piece for a team. I think Wade Baldwin is probably a little bit underrated. You know, I do think there are some concerns. He doesn't finish well. He's, his his decision making is sometimes questionable. Uh, I think his his ball handling could improve quite honestly, but he has so much potential as a defender and as just an athlete and a guy who can get to the rim. If he ever gets a little bit more better in terms of his ball handling and his misdirection and his change of speeds, that he's a guy I would, I would, I would certainly be willing to gamble on Uh, Denzel Valentine. I like quite a bit. Uh, And I mean, I'm not sure who he's going to guard. I certainly understand that criticism and that concern of his, but when you, I think one of the things we drastically underrate in basketball players is decision-making. And when you have a guy who can make high-level decisions and snap decisions and can do so, so consistently and so effectively, I think he's bound to make any team he's on better. And, yeah, he's, his his concerns defensively are legitimate, but I'd rather hide that than put the ball in the hands of some guy who just can't make a good decision with it. And you give me his shooting, his passing, his playmaking, his decision-making, you know in the teens, I'll find a way to make that work. And I think he's... It's kind of amazing for a four-year senior who had the kind of season he had and and was one of the best players in college basketball. It's kind of weird to be underrated, but I think he's underrated as well.
1: I think he's underrated too, and part of why I'm intrigued by this class. I, I admittedly don't know it as well as most of the lot, the recent ones. Is that there are a lot of players, while there are very few, you know, real top-end guys, and you know that is what it is. There are a lot of players that I think could realistically be between the fourth and the eighth best player on a good team. And, you know, that's not perfect. You know, you'd like to have something like what we had last year, where there were just all these guys that are awesome. But you could see a lot of players in this class become important and maybe even to a point like beloved players on good teams because of the way that the the picks and the teams are kind of scattered around in this draft. Like you could see somebody like Ulyss or Baldwin, who you mentioned, or even Scal, if he goes to the right spot, go somewhere and have it just really work. You know, they're not going to be the next Carl Anthony Towns, but they can be an important part of something big.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's a great way to put it. You know, I think the 15 to 30 part of this draft is pretty strong. And that's not really... I feel like whenever we rate the relative strength of a draft, we're basically talking about the top 10, and that's what we focus on. I think the second half of this first round is, is, is relatively strong. So I think, yeah, there might not be... a too many high-level players and you could look you know at the top 10 five years down the line and wonder you know how did all this happen but I do think there's some some definite strong points in this draft
1: and that's why a team like the like the Nuggets are so fascinating to me because they kind of have this balance and if they can if they can hit on some of their picks I, I really like their combination of young assets
2: yeah they certainly have a bunch of picks there's a lot of teams it seems like there's about three or four teams that have nearly all the first round picks this year in boston philadelphia Denver, I think Phoenix has a couple, so uh, it'll be interesting.
1: Anything else you want to discuss?
2: That probably just about covers it. I mean, we could go on and on about the draft, but we would we, we don't have a three-hour podcast. I don't want to subject any of your listeners to that. But certainly if there's anything you'd like to bring up, but no, I think we probably touched on most of it.
1: Well, so uh, the other guy that we didn't talk about early, do you think Kendall Marshall will be on this team next year?
2: I think he could be, but I think probably not. I think they're probably going to go—I th- I mean, I think TJ McConnell quite soundly— Outplayed played him. And he's on a better contract. He's younger. He defends a little bit better. And I just feel like they have a little bit more... They're a little bit higher of a comfort level with TJ than they do with Kendall. So, you know, how many backup point guards are you really going to carry on your roster at a time? And I just have a feeling they're going to go out and address the starting point guard, whether that's Ish Smith, who you know might be a little bit costly for the role they're going to ask him. But I think you are probably going to go out and try to find a, a starting point guard. I think TJ is probably going to be one of the two backups. And at that point, it's just do you really need to go into the season with three traditional point guards I'd say probably not with Kendall
1: yeah I agree with you oh and the other thing I don't feel as strongly about it as I did last year but like I wrote a piece for the sporting news early on in my tenure there about how the Sixers could have gamed the system by just trolling basically trolling teams with high restrictive free agent offers and I actually think they could be a, a really nice offer sheet destination for some of these guys the problem is there are probably going to be a lot of places that now that they shorten the moratorium that are going to have it. So like if you're, let's say Harrison Barnes, you'll probably go somewhere else. But I think the Sixers could have a part to play in in restricted free agency.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, they they have maybe like 30 million committed to the cap next year. Like they're going to have to be a, they're going to have to play a role somewhere. I mean, you can't go in with a $90 million cap with a $30 million payroll. So certainly restricted free agency. Uh, But like you said, with this year, a number of teams that are going to have significant cap space, it's going to be tough for them to navigate uh, and it's going to be, you know, tough for them to really differentiate themselves from every other team in the league. So it'll, it'll be interesting how they use that. You know, I think with, with Sam Hinkey here, you probably would have looked at them and said, well, you know, maybe they're going to, they're going to take on another contract in a trade to help a team get even more cap space. Maybe they're going to look for creative ways to gain additional picks. Whereas with Brian Colangelo, you they're probably going to go out and look to try to find someone. So it'll be real interesting who they target. Because I think the one selling point they do have is playing time. And if you're going to look at a young kid, maybe give him a little bit more money than he would have gotten elsewhere and say, oh, by the way, you can start here and you can have the ball in your hands and you can create. It'll just be interesting who they determine that guy could be.
1: Yeah, that's definitely an option. The other one would be something similar to what the Celtics did last year with, with Amir Johnson, which is give a guy more in a single year and then do some sort of team friendly thing on the second those yep. will be harder to do in 2016 than they were in 2015, just because the market's going to be so saturated. But there could be some opportunities there as well.
2: Yeah, no doubt. It'll, it'll be a fascinating summer for really all teams, but, but certainly for the Sixers.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
2: My pleasure. Take care.
1: Thanks again to Derek Bodner. You can read him at Philadelphia Magazine, the USA Today, and Draft Express. He puts out absolutely fantastic work. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Derek DerekBodnerMBA, D-E-R-E-K, B-O-D-N-E-R-N-B-A. Really great to have him on. I love talking Sixers. I really love talking about the draft with him as well. And it was fun to take a little bit of a break, if you want to call it that, from the playoffs. You can also listen to the podcast that I did with Kevin Pelton over the weekend, which I thought was really fun, especially going into a very intense weekend of basketball. And, you know, lots of other fun stuff going on. Of course, Nate Duncan and I are doing the Dunked On Basketball podcast. Almost every day, it seems like, for the playoffs. And then have writing work. I just had a piece about Kem Durant and the Spurs go up on the Sporting News. And lots of great material on The Athletic, where I am running the SF Bay section, which is right now only on the Warriors, but we'll eventually hopefully expand beyond that. So if you have any input, you can always reach out to me on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also email NBA at gmail.com. I read everything, I respond to as much as I can. So thank you for listening, take care, and make it a great day.
0: Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-pack and 50% off a caravan 10-foot-by-10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale in-store and online at cabelas.com.
1: for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen,
0: all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.